Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest for this conversation needs no introduction. The OG Apple O'Day guy, the OG car hacker, the OG Charlie Miller. Welcome to the show. How Great. are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Why did it take so long for you to come on the show? I feel like we this is way, way, way overdue. Yeah, I I, I listen to your podcast, believe it or not, and uh, I've wanted to come on for a while, but you know, it finally worked out. So hopefully, it'll be good. Thank you. Thank you. You're a security engineer at Cruise working on uh, securing driverless cars, working on automation uh, there. But before we get into all of that, I want to get into the car hacking scene and, and your thoughts on where we are. But I want to, since I have you on the podcast, we got to spend some time going through your, your life and career. Okay. Uh, you're, you were a math guy out of high school. How did you end up at the NSA? Were you recruited out of high school or out of some of those programs like Vinny and Chris Eng and some no, of those guys? No, I was not a very good high school student, so... I went to college like everyone else. I majored in math, went to grad school at Notre Dame, got a PhD, and then I had to decide if I wanted to basically teach math or do something else, and I didn't really want to teach math. So, uh, What are we talking about, 2000s? Uh, Early 2000s? Yeah, yeah, I graduated in 2000. So uh, NSA was a chance to go do something else, so I went there, and uh, while I was there, uh, they... You know, it was a pretty cool program. They taught me the trade and uh, learned how to do computer stuff. What can you talk about the trade? What can you talk about what you did there? Anything at all? Not I mean, too much. You, uh, I, uh, how long did you I was there like five years. I basically took Dave Vitale's seat. So uh, I was in you know basically the same area as he was. And both of you have the same answer, which is I can't tell you anything about I mean, that stuff is so outdated. Anything I worked on is 20 years old, so no one cares anyway. Got it. Uh, we got to be the public, myself and, and, and uh, security journalists and writers got introduced to you in 2007, I believe, through your paper. Uh, let me get it right. The legitimate vulnerability market inside the secretive world of ODE exploit sales. 2007, seminal paper on, on, on that market and the existence of that market. Can you just go back and give me the, what was the motivation for writing it? And what were you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, not a lot of journalists like yourself even covered that. <laughs> it was like totally below the radar. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I, yeah, at the time, people were, uh, you know, there was this, you know, it, it's people know now that, that folks sell exploits and there's. It, you had just left the NSA, right? This was yeah, it was like two, two years How later. Or something. I left in 2005, I think. So okay. it had been a little bit of time. I had been doing some research and stuff. And I guess I just kept hearing people talk about, uh, you know, whether, you know, are people selling exploits? Is this a thing? And, you know, I, I wanted to kind of lay out as, you know, my, that was my one shot at trying to be a journalist, I guess, was uh, lay out the story right. as I knew it. You know, if exploit sales were going on, I and then I I really took it from a, like a researcher's perspective, like why is selling exploits hard? Why would you want to do it? Um, you know, what are some problems you'll run into and and that sort of thing. And I presented it at some economics conference, uh, so right, it's yeah. uh, you know it, it wasn't exactly like mainstream. Right, but what's, well, the motivation was to just kind of shine some light on the existence of this market and more specifically. Just how complicated and and and, and um, complex it was to navigate it from yeah. the researcher's perspective. Getting a good price, getting finding the right buyers, making sure it's not burned before it's sold. Yeah, and so it's on. tricky because uh, it's like nuanced in the sense that it's not like you're selling a car where you can just get it back or whatever. Like it, you know, what you're selling is basically a secret 
and what you know how do you prove that it's real without just giving it away and where they're like oh yeah actually we didn't want that but now we already have it so we're not paying you so it's just kind of interesting i thought it was at least from like you know how do you try to navigate around that and you know, the short answer is it's just all trust-based from then till now and the question now is we're at 2022 this stuff has become so normalized that we have companies we have offensive exploit creation companies selling there's mercenary conversations around mercenary groups and so on it's become rather mainstream when you look back at 2007 and what you were trying to raise and where we are today and where exploit sales are uh, are you what what is your what is your own take on on how it's evolved i mean almost all the research i did was uh you know, this and, and lots of other stuff we can talk about was like weird and interesting and no one knew it at the time. And now everyone knows it. So like, I don't know if, if that is because just time moved on or what, but uh, like you said, there's, there's, you know, million dollar companies and lots of people that we know probably work for them. And, you know, it's not a secret. It's just the way things work now. But back when I gave the, or wrote the paper, no one really knew anything about it. And so I was just trying to shed some light on it, I guess. Uh, are you surprised with where we are today with exploit sales being a big key part of the, the ecosystem or do you expect, were you expecting it to kind of stay under the radar all these years? Because there's a little bit of controversy to it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, 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 controversial takes around selling these things to governments for use against, you know, dissidents and some other like non, uh, uh, uh credible targets. When you look at where exploit sales is today, were you expecting we'd be here? I don't know if I really thought that hard about it, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not that surprised no. in the sense that like exploits are always going to be useful to people, whether they're bad guys, good guys, governments, right. hackers, you know, pen testers, whatever. And, uh, they've gotten progressively harder to make or write or discover. And, uh, you know, there's value in that. And so I guess I'm not surprised people try to make money off of, you know, something that's hard to do. How did you deal with some of the early controversy from your discussion of this? You remember Chris Chagoyan actually did a famous talk with your, with your, with your kitchen, photograph of your kitchen up there and, and was very critical of you guys, suggesting that you were part of that section of the industry that was uh, uh, pushing exploits in the wrong places. Was that something that ever concerned you? Is that something you worried about navigating? I mean, that particular individual never concerned me. But uh, <laughs> the, the idea is... No, yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for me, it was always more of a, you know, a, a freedom of speech, kind of freedom of expression kind of topic more than, you know, uh, people hunting dissidents or something. So it was like, uh, you know, it was I found a vulnerability and... Uh, I have, I can do what I want with that information and it's up to companies to secure their products. It's not my job to do that. I'm just some guy. And so that's the way right. I always saw it. And so like, I have the freedom to do what I want with this information was kind of you know, the way I saw it. Right. And right after that, you became a thorn in Apple's side. Was that deliberate? I mean, it certainly was wasn't related to, kind it of wasn't related to that. It was, uh, you know, I mean, basically the, the trying to think the way I got started in that. Uh, so like, again, this is something that you won't believe now, but in the 2006 timeframe, there was a large group of people, like 80% of folks, even in our industry, who didn't believe that you could have malware on a Mac. Like it, it just was not like right. it was impossible. They right. thought Apple was leading. 
But Apple was leading with that messages. I'm wow. a Mac, the European PC, PCs got the sniffles and right. so on. So they led their entire marketing program around that. I know, but anyone with any anymore. knowledge at all should have known it was bullshit. So, so a part of my mission was just to educate again, like, you know, hey, it's a computer. It's going to run code if you give it to it, you know, and there's, you know, they didn't figure out a magic bullet to write perfect software and there's going to be vulnerabilities. And so... A lot of my early like research and Mac stuff, and that was like kind of the early pwn to own things was uh, right. like, hey, look, you know, it's it, exploits do work against Macs, and and the really hilarious thing is the after the first year I won pwn to own, uh, you know, hacking a, a MacBook. Like if you read that, yeah, you're going too fast because I want to go back. I want me to finish this. So, well. so like the comments in that, if you read like Slashdot or something back then are all about how they thought I was just like lying or making it up. Like even after I showed that you right, could right. do it, people didn't want to believe that you could actually exploit a Mac. And so it's just bizarre. And then like the second year, it was like more people kind of believed it. And then at some point, then it was kind of common knowledge that, wow, they're not perfectly safe computers. Who knew? Right. The first time was in 2008 after Dino had, had done it the previous year. In addition to educating people, there were some serious cash on, 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 on display there. Your first win in 2008 was a $10,000 cash for MacBook Air. Includes the MacBook Air, the point to own component as well. Uh, what do you remember about that period of time? I believe it was a Safari bug you used? Uh, yeah, they were all the, uh, the point known wins I did were Safari bugs. Were Safari I bugs. Think. Can you paint a picture for the audience about what... Um, what cracking into a Mac look like at that time compared to today with those folks coming to point to one trying to get into it. Well, for one thing, they sure win a lot more money today than I did. So you mentioned there's a lot of money, 10K, you know, I'm not going to turn it down, but targets are harder. I mean, they make like 100K now. (laughs) I mean, but targets are harder. I mean, it's much, much more difficult than when you were. I mean, you admit that up front that like a lot of the, a lot of what you're seeing the kids doing at point to one today is incredible work. I mean, for sure. I mean, and part of that is if you look like I did some of those at least by myself where now it's teams of 10 people doing it. And that's just like, and it's not that I'm worth 10 people. I'm definitely not. It's that it's just that much harder. Um, but yeah, like back then, like I can't remember the details. It's been 15 years, but like they, yeah. I, like I'm pretty sure they didn't have uh, depth for sure. I, they might not have had ASLR. I don't remember the details, but it was certainly much easier. No sandbox. No, there was zero sandboxing. Uh, that was a big change that happened, of course. Uh, so yeah, so it was easier for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, the people weren't, I don't know if there weren't as many people in the field or, or what the deal was, but there wasn't, especially in 2008, there wasn't that much competition to who, you know, people who knew how to hack into Max. Do you think your work and the work of Dino and some of the guys going to Point to Own every year actually forced Apple into, how much credit do you give to Point to Own for dragging Apple along and, you know, adding those mitigations, adding those roadblocks to where we are today, where it's a lot more difficult to show up at point to one with a single uh, vulnerability and a single exploit and pop the entire machine. Yeah, you need need change for sure. Um, Like the thing about Pondo that's interesting is, yes, you know, you mean you can sit here and say it's gotten harder and it has, I think. Um, But if you look at like the data of Pondo every year, someone does it. So uh, you know, right. if, if you're looking at the binary data of can a computer get hacked at Pwn to Own, the answer has been yes for 20 years. And that hasn't ever changed. And so that's kind of an, an interesting thing that it's it's hard to measure how much harder it is when that is, you know, and maybe you can use the money in Pwn to Own as a measurement of some kind. But right. if you measure based on success, then there's been no progress. Um, but back to your original question about how much impact. But that's not fair. 
But but that's not fair though that there's been no change if you measure it based on success because it's it's a, a okay let's get into that that little portion there if it's so much harder that it requires teams and chains and the prices are so much higher why is it still successful well it's possible of course uh, and uh, you know so, I mean whether today or in ten years you're going to be able to hack into a computer or in a web browser. Uh, so it's possible. And then why do people do it? I guess, uh, you know, for the prize money, for the fame, for their resume. I don't know. So, so I mean, as long as you, you hang that carrot out there, people are going to go for it. And it's right. possible. So they're going to succeed most of the time and so far all the time. Right. And as an industry, you guys, the experts said, stop looking for bugs and stop focusing on bugs and try to stop limit exploitation. Try to reduce exposure to exploitation, reduce attack surfaces here and there. Do you think that as an industry from 2007, 8, 9, those years to today, we've moved in the direction we needed to move with the right set of mitigations and the right set of investments in security? Or would you have preferred we had gone in, in certain different directions? How do, you, how do you look at the evolution of security on platforms, not only Apple, but Windows and so on, and, and, and based on your previous advice that we should be focusing on? on limiting the power of X. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So for a while, I believed the opposite. So I was a big proponent of find all the bugs. And then at some point, uh, I changed my mind. <laughs> so like, at some point, I realized that, yeah, this, you know, you can find a lot of the bugs, but you're never gonna find all the bugs. And I think I, I, I underestimated how many vulnerabilities there are in software. And once I kind of got a better handle on that, I was like, Oh, that's, this is not a solution. So uh, yeah, so, and that's still the most realistic approach to it. Yeah, right? I mean, you, you're not going to write perfect software, period. So what you have to worry about then is, like you mentioned, so minimizing attack surface. So you can eliminate huge classes of bugs or huge groups of bugs by not even having the code in your product anymore. Um, of course, you know, you still need a, a web browser. It still needs to parse images and videos and stuff. So you can never eliminate everything, uh, but you can you can do that. And then you try to make, okay, then you say the this browser or this piece of software is going to get exploited. Um, then what? Like, I don't want to lose everything then. So then you make it to where like, you know, Chrome, I don't know, I haven't kept up on this in a while, but for a while, Chrome had a sandbox that said you could read files, but you couldn't write files. Um, and so like, okay, well then you could read stuff, but you're not going to really be able to persist because you can't write any files. And and so uh, you use sandboxes, you make things hard, you hopefully have some detection in there to where like, okay, I, I give up, you're going to attack me someday and, and succeed, but I'm going to know it. And then I'm going to be able to do something about it. And so uh, that's kind of the the kind of holistic approach I think you need to take because just saying like I'm going to find all the bugs is not really a you know sane solution. And on the reduction of right, and on the reduction of attack surface space, we've got a more recent most recent example is lockdown mode. Have you gotten a chance to play with it? What are your thoughts on what lockdown no, mode? No, I'm a I'm a bad uh, practitioner of security, so I, I like you know security is a trade off between things are easy and work and things are secure. And in my personal life, I just choose to make things work. It's you know, life's hard enough without my computer not being able to do stuff. So you haven't looked at lockdown mm -hmm. mode at all. Do you expect it to be game changing though? Just from a technical perspective with the kind of attack surface reductions it has done, do you expect success from that to uh, address? I mean, what what's, meant to address? what's success? So if, if your customer of lockdown mode is, uh, you know, the president of the United States or a CEO of, some high tech company, then no, you're still going to be able to attack those guys. And if you're, if you're, uh, you know, who's, if your customer is me, just some guy, then you probably don't need it because, you know, my iPhone's pretty secure unless you're, 
you're one of these few people right. who can spend six months working on an exploit and why are you going to waste it on me? So like, I don't really get right. what it's supposed to solve. It doesn't solve, it doesn't make your phone hundred percent secure. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, my phone's right. And it's meant to, it's meant, it's meant to address targets from those adversaries that are fully, fully well-resourced. I mean, it's, it's NSO right. and Pegasus and those types of guys. Do you think that when you say, when you say, uh, the victims of those guys are still going to be popped. You don't, you, you're saying lockdown mode, you're not expecting lockdown mode to have a significant effect on that. I mean, it's going to cost them more money and resources, but I don't think they're, they're going to be like, ah, oh, we can't hack that. You know, it's impossible. <laughs> you know, so like, I think they, they might, it might cost them a little more money to do it, but uh, I, I have no, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable having that and, and, you know, that that mode and expecting right. that to get hacked and putting my life on the line using you know and having that be the the only defense that i'm counting on i don't think that i wouldn't count on that for sure just to close the loop on the apple thing how would you rate the the, the security posture of the macbook and the iphone today i mean it's a hell of a lot better than 10 years ago <laughs> no it's pretty good like and you're still yeah i still use i mean i'm talking to you on a mac right now i have an iphone in my pocket so i still use it i've used it forever um i I think they're they're pretty good. Uh, I you know you you mentioned Pondone earlier. I did it four years, and eventually I stopped doing it because it was too hard. So and that was a long time ago, right? That was 2012, uh, ten years ago. It was too hard for me. So when did it become too hard? Then. Or <laughs> what made it too? Hard? Uh, you know, it's gotten harder since then, even. But uh, at the time, it was like um, you know fewer vulnerabilities. Uh, they reduced their attack surface. They have ASL or DUP. So, and at some point I'm sure they had sandbox or whatever. I, that was, you know, past my days, but right. you know, it, I don't really, for me, and it's not fun point, to work in a group of 10 people, you know, hacking a thing. It's, it's fun to right. like work with like a buddy or, you know, by yourself or whatever, uh, that, but it, it, once you got 10 people, it's right. a job. It's not, it's not a hobby. Right. It's right. not fun anymore. And at some point the, the dynamics change weird from, like we just mentioned from, from one vulnerability and one exploit, it, it went to, you needed three or four vulnerabilities yep. to get root and do additional You need like uh, uh, information disclosure bugs, which I suck at finding. And so like it was, there was just things that were kind of, uh, you know, I did it. It was never my job. I never really made any money on it. And so right, it right. was just something that I would do in my spare time. And it got to the point that it wasn't fun enough to do in my spare time. And then you pivoted to mobile and you might have the distinction for all like for for all we know of being the only security researcher to be banned from both app stores. Could you talk a little bit about the Apple yeah. work and the Android work that caused sure. that? Sure. Um, so my, my uh, humble brag is I was the first one to hack an iPhone, first one to hack an Android phone when they came out a million years ago. Um, but what you're talking about is uh, so the for the iPhone. The way iPhones work is they have code signing, and that's what makes it to where you can only download apps from the App Store and not just from some random website. And that's one of the things that makes it really secure, is uh, and uh, and secure in the sense that it, you you're not going to have like malware running crazy on your phone because it had to go through the App Store. And part of going through the App Store is Apple reviews it before they put it there. So like if it was doing something super mm -hmm. bad, they would probably wouldn't put it there. Um, anyway, I found a flaw like a while ago. You, hopefully, you know the year. I don't. Um, where, uh, 2011, there you go. iPhone and iPad. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I found a flaw where you could have an app that could download code that hadn't been signed and hadn't been checked by Apple and run it. Um, so that, that violates their basic, uh, security principle around code signing. And, uh, of course I was going to report this to Apple cause I always report on my books, Apple. And, 
Um, Apple never pays me or anything like that. I never have gotten a bug bounty from them. Uh, I just did it for fun. And uh, one of the things I knew was going to happen, because at this point, Apple already knew who I was pretty well, because I'd reported a bunch of bugs to them in the past. But you had created an, you had created an app to demo, yeah, yeah. Uh, a harmless app. I think it was like stock quotes or something. It was like, yeah. it allowed you to manipulate some data. So there, the, right? the deal was, I was afraid that if I reported to them the bug, that there was this code signing flaw and that you could have in an app, that they would say, oh, well, if you if you submitted that, we would have caught it. So there's no way that that you vulnerability would ever be exposed to in the real world. And so in a preemptive move, I created an app <laughs> that did take advantage of that vulnerability only if I made it. So, you know, if some random guy downloaded my app, it wouldn't do it. I, I had to trigger it. And uh, so anyway, and I put the app in the, uh, through the app store review process, it passed. Uh, so it was in the app store for like months. And then I reported the bug to them and, you know, they fixed it. Um, but they uh, got mad. So, so like the, the story is I was out like jogging one day, I came home and my wife's like, oh, Apple called you. And I was like, Apple doesn't call me never in my life. <laughs> it's, it's not like Ever. a common thing for a multi-billion dollar corporation to give you a ring. So I knew, I knew something right. was up and it turned out that that was the day that the, the like news you know, report or whatever had come out about this bug and the app and all that stuff. And so anyway, they were mad about the app, uh, being in the app store because it, you know, had the security critical vulnerability in it or whatever. And so they, uh, and, and to punish me, I guess they told me I couldn't, they, they kicked me out of the, the developer program for a year, uh, for at least a year, they said. Um, so then I couldn't right. write apps anymore. Um, the, the only reason that kind of affected me a little bit was I couldn't down before that I could download as part of that program, like beta releases of, of Apple OSs. So I could like right. check out my exploits were working or not, or if they had fixed them. Um, so that was kind of a bummer, but. Uh, anyway, I contacted them after a year and I was like, Hey, it's been a year. Like, can I get back in this program? And they just didn't respond to the email. So as far as I know, I'm still, so you assume I guess I'm banned for life. <laughs> and then like, and then the, the, go ahead. The Android app store, you also had an incident with the Android app store. What caused that? Yeah, that, that one was, uh, me and, uh, John Override wrote a, some, did some research into their thing called bouncer. I don't know if they still have this thing, but. It was the way, like, again, they have a, a review process for apps you develop. Um, but I guess they, they do it all, or at least a big part of theirs was uh, automatic. So, like, you would take an app, they would run it in, a, like, an emulator, make sure that it didn't do anything too crazy. And if it was fine, they would, they would put it in the store. And so we were doing some research on, uh, like, how that thing works and how you could fingerprint that. So, like, how can you, t could your app, like, act nicely when it's an emulator and then on a real phone, you know, be malicious or whatever. Uh, but they ended up the, the like super crazy thing about this was I never, so my, I never published an app ever with them because it, you could just put it up there, they would review it and then you had to hit publish right. and I just never published one. And so they kicked me out because, uh, not even, so I never published one, but John had published some and he got kicked out because of that. And then they kicked me out because, uh, my account was associated with his account. And, uh, so uh. I was like, I was like, this is so absurd. And then I was like, but at the same time, if I'm associated with John, like I'm probably pretty dirty. So it's probably fine to kick me out. So yeah, they, they kicked me out and they straight up said it was a lifetime ban. So I will never be able to make right. a career writing apps. They, they've made sure of that. In either of the two apps. You know, unless I, you know, Nokia comes back or something, I'm pretty much out of luck. 
In your research years, what would you say, and I've, I've asked you this during the point one years, but I'm looking at it from a more wider lens. What do you say you're, you're, you're better at? Finding vulnerabilities and fuzzing and looking for crashes and finding exploitable parts or writing exploits? Oh, yeah, that's and an easy the, question. The flip side to that is which is easier and which is harder? I don't, I mean, as far as these are harder, I think it depends on the person. But for me, I'm 100% better at finding bugs. Like I can find bugs. I like finding bugs. It's interesting to me. Writing exploits is just something I do just to prove that bugs are real. <laughs> like, I don't like it, um, but uh, you know, you just it's sort of part of the job or whatever. So um, yeah, I'm good at finding bugs. Like the thing I think I've liked finding bugs, you know, since I was, you know, NSA, like the thing I- What makes you good? What makes someone good at finding bugs? What is the, is there a, is there a mental approach? Is there a, a, a luck component to it? Is there a framework that works for everyone? Yeah. I mean, I will say like the reason I like it is it's uh it's usually like you it's really hard and there's tons of code and all this but at the end it usually boils down to like two lines and you're like look how stupid they were they made this mistake right that's the thing i think is so fun about it um is it looks easy it's like magic it looks easy i mean but it's hard right and so anyway but as far as what it takes to be good at it like uh for one thing you have to be patient and you know not give up so you're probably not going to find a bug in a day or a week sometimes and like, uh, you know, I've, I've looked for weeks without finding any bugs and that's just part of it. And, you know, people ask if I use math, my PhD in math ever, no is the answer to that, yeah. except, uh, you know, working three years on a math problem teaches you that you can't solve everything in a day. And I think I kind of use that there, but, um, no, I think a big part of finding bugs is, is look, looking in the right place. So, uh, you know, look at code that is either like super brand new or super old that nobody uses, but it's still there. And, um, you know, a lot of my success has been, especially recently uh, or more recently is, uh, in like newer type products. So it's like, oh, these, you know, like I'm not looking at core windows for bugs because they, they've, right. that's been audited by a billion people. So I, it's like, oh, like, you know, if we want to talk about cars or, you know, batteries or whatever, like no one probably look at this in a long time or ever. Um, and so, so yeah, so I've always kind of trying to look at, at something that's easier you're more likely to have implementation errors there and some other things that, that, that pop up bugs, right? Dino also talks about blood in the water. Is that an approach you take where you know you know that this component of code has always been problematic and you're more likely to find something? Yeah, there? that's a pro- an approach for sure. I don't, that's like kind of the opposite of what I do. I try to look where no one else is looking. So um, yeah, there's different ways and different people find different bugs. And, you know, even when I, I was a consultant or at my day job now, like, I never look for bugs by myself, like, cause it's just, I'm, there's some bugs I'm going to find and there's some that due to whatever biases I have or whatever, I'm never going to find. And right. so, uh, it always takes more than one set of eyes. I think if you're, if you want to know what's going on. I asked this of Nico Wiseman and some of your peers in the exploit writing world. And it's something that's just, you know, fascinating and interesting to me. Maybe it's, it'll bore the audience, but what does it feel like emotionally when you've pop the piece of software and you get your exploit to run super cleanly. Is that something you're like, you're clicking and running it over and over just for the <laughs> thrill of it? Like, what does that feel like? What does that feel like at the, at the, you know, at the visceral level, finding and realizing that you have this? It feels good. But at the same time, like it's, it's like days, or at least for me, cause I'm slow. It's days of like knowing this is going to work. And then it finally does. So it's like, fine. It's like relief. Like finally that thing worked. I knew it was going to work. It just finally did. So. Like, uh, you know, people wonder, like, was it, was I excited when I hacked the, the Jeep the first time? It's like, yes, except it was like months of 
you know, micro progress. And so it was like right. that final day was, you know, step 1000 relief. More right. I had already done 999 steps and that was step a thousand. So like, yeah, it was cool, but I knew I'd known for months it was going to work. It was just a matter of like, you know, trudging down the, the trail until I got there. That's how a lot of it for is right. like writing exploits is for me. I feel like we're rushing through all of your, like, like your, your history. Yeah, man, stop downplaying all my cool stuff. I was hacking stuff all day, man. You know, give me no credit. No, there was the work, the work with Colin Molinar in 2009 around the SMS processing bug, which I believe you tested on an iPhone of mine that I still have, the old original iPhone of mine that I still have. Yeah, Colin's my coworker now. I still Um, hang out with him. And uh, yeah, so that one, uh, it was, you could send a text message and take over an iPhone, which no one had done at that yeah. point. Now it's like, yeah. you know, with uh, Natalie and stuff, like they're finding all sorts of bugs in, in SMS parsers. Right. That was the original zero click, right? The original zero click. You gave me a, you sent me a te- uh, an SMS. I clicked on a link and you had my uh, 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 contact database on your machine. It was like mine eye opening to me. At yeah. The time. Uh, I mean, it was magic, right? So <laughs> you could, you could, all I needed was your phone number. I didn't need you to click anything. So that was nice. Uh, didn't even right. need to know your email or nothing. So, uh, I could send you a text message on your iPhone and, and you know, take it over, which was like a pretty cool, but pretty cool. How did you, ch- how, how did you choose your targets? Cause I feel like there's a little bit of the media game you were playing as well, going after those things that were going to, you know, create headlines, drama publicity, you know, you talked about educating the audience and so on. Cause you did battery hacking as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was another one that I'm, I'm forgetting. You did the, the Apple battery hack, um, NFC stuff before the yeah. car stuff. How did you pick your time? Yeah, I mean, the NFC thing was interesting too, but yeah, I, I was like, just stuff that interests me. So like I, I did basically web browsers forever because that's kind of the, the most, right. you know, ripe for the picking. Um, but then I was like, I got sick of that. And I was like, what kind of things can I attack that are not that, that are, you know, that are different or unique in some way. And I was like, Oh, it'd be cool if you could send a text message and hack a phone. And so that's what I did. Uh, right. And so just the intellectual curiosity and, and, and just the fascination with trying. Yeah. To back in being able yeah, to back in that. that time is when I uh, hacked second life too, which was like, Ah, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. Talk to me. Remember, I remember that was a fun, fun. Yeah, that was a good well. one. So that, I mean, for people who don't are too young to know what second life is, it was like this uh, <laughs> thing that like Facebook's metaverse or whatever they're trying yeah, to do. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so you could, uh, I worked with Dean on this one too. So you, you could create an object in second life, just like a, it was and in this case it was like a box. And if you got, if your like avatar got too close to a, the box, I would take over your avatar and your computer. And so it was sort of interesting that like, to me, that was interesting because it's like, oh, it's like a physical, you know, creation, right? It's a creation in the real world and the, you know, quote, virtual world of the exploit. Like the exploit was a thing and yeah, that was zero click too. You just walk by it and, uh, and it would exploit you. And then you didn't, I, I, for a long time, I thought you had to like see the box, but it turned out the box, like your computer, your computer doesn't have eyeballs. So like you could just bury the box (laughs) underground. And if you still walked over it, the computer processed it and you would exploit you. So very interesting stuff. I thought. Didn't it, didn't the demo include some audio file? I, 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 I I don't know. My, maybe my memory is fading, but I remember the demo of that exploit might've had some fun. There was one, I mean, you might be talking about this. So I, you know, back then, apparently I was braver than I am now. I was doing, me and Dino were giving a talk at ShmooCon and we were demoing the the exploit live in front of everybody uh, in Second Life. And uh, at the time, 
there, I had, of course, we had reported the bug to Linden Labs, which is the name of the company. Right, right. Uh, but, at, at, you know, it's a virtual world. Anyone can show up virtually if they want to. And some Linden Labs employee showed up with like a little protest picket sign that was walking around <laughs> while we were doing the demo. I was like, this is so wild. I was like, I guess we'll still just do it anyway, even though there's a guy, you know, protesting the exploit. But, uh, you know, fix it if you don't want us to <laughs> live demo our exploit. Uh, just going back to that time, I'm closing the loop on it. There was a famous picture of Alex Sadirov and Dino Daisovi on stage at Cancer Quest with the cardboard "No More Free Bug" sign. You were part of that—I won't call it a movement—but you were part of that group of guys at the time who were objecting to giving just uh, finding bugs and giving it to vendors who were not only sleeping on them and and taking a long time to patch them, but and and would would blame researchers for irresponsible disclosure and all those stuff. What was the motivation for no more free bugs? And what were you guys, what was the idea there? And how has it evolved to today? What we are seeing around bug bounty programs and all Man, that. Man, anyone who listens to this is going to have no idea. We're skipping all over the place. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, no more free bugs was something that uh, me, Alex, and Dino came up with at Cansec West. They're famous for holding the sign. I was actually on stage talking about it, doing the intellectual, intellectual uh, power work while they're just standing there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the idea was... Uh, you know, we, we, I've reported tens of bugs, maybe a hundred bugs to companies over, you know, my career and they hadn't given me anything. <laughs> so we're working really hard to, and the results is that, that the products are being more secure and, uh, companies, uh, weren't, you know, and sometimes companies, not only were they not giving us anything, they were downright hostile about it. And, I'll right. be hostile, and right. so the idea was just like, Hey, uh, it'd be nice to, to, to have some rules in place of how, you know, we report bugs and, you know, maybe make some money off it since you pay, you pay the same person working for you to try to find these bugs. But when I'm don't work for you, you don't pay me anything. And so the idea was just like, well, maybe we can hold these companies accountable for, for the way they interact with researchers, uh, by not providing bugs anymore. It's like, until you, you figure out a way to compensate us for this work. We'll, we'll, we won't give you any more bugs. So that, that was no more free bugs. And uh, we did that for a while, for months, I guess. There was a bunch of people you know, who, who, who were participating right. in that. Uh, and, uh, and it didn't work. So <laughs> right. this was pre, but, but, but this was pre bug bounty platforms. Yeah, there, there was, were, there were basically, there were, there were I defense, very sign. There were some, there were a few, but, yeah. but it was before the booming of the bug bounty. Yeah. Platform there weren't really any bug bounty platforms then. And, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, in some sense, I mean, first of all, I'm not going to take any credit for the way the industry moves. I'm just people paying right. for bugs. No, I didn't, you know, they, the industry moves, I'm a drop in the ocean or the river, I guess is a better analogy. So yeah, maybe I moved it in a millimeter. Uh, but, but it was an important piece of the conversation at the time, the whole notion of vendors taking advantage of security researchers and yeah. the value of vulnerabilities, making products a lot better and making products a lot more expensive. And you guys were not being properly compensated for it. It was an important part of the, just a general conversation. It got people talking about it. Uh, you know, there was news stories. Maybe there are people like companies who thought about it, but um, you know, I like to say, well, listen, you know, for nine months, we didn't report any bugs. And companies, uh, instead of coming begging for more bugs, were thrilled because they didn't have any uh, security advisories during that time. So right. they're like, everyone from the outside thought that they were finally secure. And <laughs> it's it's like the exact right, opposite of what really happened, which is hilarious to me. 
And right after that, Google started buying bugs. Google started, you know, coming to Point to One as a sponsor and running their own Chrome Point to One program. So it, it, at least it, in 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 practice, the no more free bugs movement did resonate, and we started to see vendors starting to pay for. Yeah, this. I mean, there are certainly bug bounties now in a lot of companies, and and another thing that we really wanted, and one of the things bug bounties does provide, like formal bug bounties, is just rules of engagement. So uh, it it says like, here's the rules: you can submit a bug, and we won't prosecute you we won't do anything you know here's the kind of bugs here's what you can do and we're okay with it here's what you can't do and we'll be mad at you and that's really a big part of it too it's just like uh how can i know i can report this bug without getting in trouble and so that that's a big part of bug bounties that is a a nice benefit even if the money's not enough like i couldn't live off of my bug bounty fines but at least i know that i'm not going to go to jail and that's something and then in 2014 you pivoted to cars 2000 well, Earlier than that, I think. Well, 2014 is when yeah, it publicly, yeah. when the work became publicly known. Um, what was what was the idea? Why 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 automobiles? Um, well, it was interesting. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I thought it was cool that uh, you know, I I had like I mentioned before, I like to write exploits. I like to find bugs. I like to know how things work. And there's nothing like there's nothing that's computerized. It's bigger than a car that I own. Right? I don't own a satellite or a right. tank or anything the biggest computer i own is in my car and uh it's it's also like you know back to like the second life and the sms thing it's like i like to be able to show like i like to pretend like hey if i'm talking to my grandma and she wants to know what i do i need a way to explain that to her and that and say like oh i hack web browsers and i can read your mail it's kind of like she doesn't really know what the hell i'm talking about but right, if, right. if i say like hey you know when I, when you here's a video of andy greenberg di- driving down the road and i can turn a steering wheel like she's like terrified by that and at least she can understand what that is right. so so for me it was appealing because you could physically demonstrate it uh, it had safety implications so it was hopefully helping people be safer it was uh you know i thought it would be pretty easy because no one had probably really looked at it Maybe one group had but like in my particular chosen car probably no one had ever uh looked at it outside of whoever worked there and so I thought it would what it wouldn't be too hard to find a bug. You mentioned one Yeah, you mentioned one other person was there was some uh what was the car hacking scene at the time? Were were, were you guys pioneering this or were you trying to uh, uh piggyback on some private Yeah, so or, around you know, around the time frame of like 2012 there was uh some academic group that was working on this and they hacked uh an, an Impala. They were able to remotely hack into the car uh, from from anywhere and they could control the brakes. And so that was kind of, uh, and they had two papers, one that was kind of like our first paper, which was just only like if you were internal to the car and then a second one that showed different ways you could wirelessly attack the car. And their papers were great, super thorough. Um, and that's what we based all our research on. That, at the time, that was the only paper about it. So uh, there's still yeah. not that many papers about it, but um, yeah, so I read that paper probably 20 times uh, both those papers and those people did like i might have never i heard about it through through someone talking about their paper so if that paper didn't exist we may have never done any research because it like it's such a novel idea to even think you could hack a car like i don't think i could have come up with that on my own so right read the paper it was great um and then that gave us the idea it's like hey you know we should get into this it's kind of cool and and some of the things we did like they basically did everything like no click, remote car, control it, right? So they 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 did end to end everything you could do. So some of the things we wanted to do that was a little bit different than that, me and Chris Valsek, was uh, for one thing, we were going to be more open. So they were very scared to release anything for fear of it. Someone would do something bad with it. Uh, but the bad thing about that is like, it was really hard for 
folks like me to learn like how to do anything. Because uh, so we wanted to release all our right. tools, be very very transparent. The other thing is the cars had come along a lot a long way from the like the 2010 car, whatever they were looking at. So right. uh, they they could do brakes. They could have probably done a lot more, but their car just couldn't do a lot more. So we made sure to take a car that had all the advanced features we could find. So it had uh, it had lane keep assist, auto parking, so it could parallel park for you. It had um, right. the 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 cruise con- adaptive cruise control. So anyway, so there was a lot more computerized components, so we could do a lot more physically with the car. So that was the other kind of thing that made our paper a lot more attack surfaces everywhere that we just discussed. This was just addition. All of those became addition of attack surfaces and, and, and new areas for you guys to go back exactly. to code, right? Uh, this led to a massive recall. What was the, we could talk a little bit about the outcome from this and what was the, the research, so many questions around this Jeep research. Because to, to, to do this kind of research, you actually have to go buy a vehicle. So there's a big giant cost attached to even attempting this research. Can you talk about what was that cost like? Not just, not just a, a monetary cost, but the cost of, of trying to put together this entire thing from scratch. Yeah, so we were lucky, Chris and I, like uh, we, we did two different car hacking researches. The first one was uh, I had a Ford, Chris had a Infinity or something, I can't remember. Um, oh, he had a Toyota, sorry. This was prior to yeah, the Jeep Yeah, war. this was in like around 2013. And so, and that... That that research was funded by DARPA through Mudge's um, Cyber Fast Track nice. grant. So that didn't actually cost us anything. We were able to get the cars, you know, buy a bunch of tools. And and the reason buying the tools was expensive was we, no one really talked about how to do it. So we didn't know what tools would work. So we like I'd have to buy like five different things and hope one of them worked and stuff. So like, yeah, it it, it was expensive for me. It wasn't because DARPA paid for everything. So that was nice. Uh, Okay. When the Jeep came around, we needed a Jeep. Uh, Chris worked for a consulting company at the time. They they bought us the Jeep. So it didn't cost me okay. anything besides time and, um, you know, like I would wreck it. So I wrecked the Jeep with uh, when we were doing some of the videos, I had to pay to get like a new radar put on it or something. I just paid out of pocket for that. Um, and then like with the Ford, one time I crashed into my garage on accident when I was hacking on it and uh, had to pay to get that fixed. So there are like other things that you have to pay for besides just the car itself. But uh, yeah. The Jeep research was incredible because it affected braking, steering, acceleration. There's the famous video of the wired uh, video of you, Andy Greenberg, the journalist driving in the car and you guys controlling it remotely from a location far away from a yeah. laptop and, you know, uh, uh, messing with him on the highway. You were criticized for that being a stunt hacking thing that put Andy in danger <laughs> and all that stuff. Was, was there any, was there any worries at all I mean, uh, on liability and all of that stuff? I, I, so the reason we did that first, let me say is, uh, you know, I, like, like we mentioned, the academic folks had already done basically the same thing, but they did it on a test track. Guys wearing like a race car helmet and stuff. And, you know, you didn't really hear about it. I didn't hear about it at the time when they did the research. And I'm a car or I was a hacker dude. Right. And so uh, like we wanted to really make it relatable. Like you're on a regular road, you're in a regular car, you're next to other cars. It's like uh, so that was a big part of it was we wanted to make it to where people could could associate like, oh, I get it. Like, that's bad. (laughs) Like that could happen to me. It's not just on some test track or something. And so there was some concern with it, but we tried to like consider we could have turned the steering wheel or disengaged his brakes. Like I thought we were, we kept it pretty safe. <laughs> like all we did was kill his engine. 
uh, which uh, happens to, you know, I, I grew up with a pretty crappy car. It broke down all the time. And so like, you know, it's, it's a pretty daily occurrence. A dead engine on the road exactly. is not a big deal. So that, that was, uh, you know, we tried to do something that demonstrated it, but still like kept it as safe as we could. Um, and Andy knew what it was. It's not like Andy was uh, victimless. Uh, he, he knew we were going to do it. So he had to know, uh, you know, hopefully be prepared. And the main thing, if you watch the video is I keep telling them like the bit, just like, don't panic. Right. That's the main thing. Like as long as you keep your cool, it's going to be fine. But if you start freaking out, then yeah, something bad could happen. So that was the main message I tried to get to him. And this actually was this live demo, uh, uh, response, not responsible, but was this live demo necessary for Jeep to take it seriously? Was there, what was the, what was the disclosure process with working with Jeep to get these issues? Yeah, we that? reported the, these, uh, vulnerabilities to Fiat Chrysler something like seven months before Black Hat. We told them like, Hey, we're going to talk about it at Black Hat. Here's, here's the deal. And we reported it to them before we even knew the full effects. Like we just knew that there was a vulnerability that let us do something. And so as time went on, we kept reporting more information to them about like when we found more stuff. Um, but uh, the, and whether it was necessary to get it fixed, um, and you know, who knows, but the, the one thing I will say is the day, so, you know, they had known for seven months and they did the recall like two days after the Andy Greenberg story came out. So, you know, maybe they were always right. planning on doing that, but I, I tend to think that that definitely got some attention, uh, to them to, to move a little faster. I mean, that's, that's, the, Car you know, that's, that's always, it's always a debate how you report things. Uh, you know, we just tried to give as much time as possible to people and, and, you know, let them to do the right thing. Has, has things gotten better in the car security work, in the, the car security work? Not, not, not necessarily on uh, affecting braking, steering, acceleration and all of that stuff. But in general, did your work change things around how things were designed did your work change things around how companies try to mitigate those things? What, what was the outcome outside of the recall? I mean, recall and, and, and that individual fix. Were there any structural things that, were, that was done? I mean, it's hard to tell. And not only for Jeep, yeah, but generally. I mean, so it's tough because the automotive industry is pretty secretive. So like, you, you know, Apple, who, which was secretive for years, um, now they write mm -hmm. white papers on security. Um, but you're not going to see, uh, you know, a Ford white paper on how they secure their ECUs. Like just, that's not really the culture of the auto industry. So it's pretty tough to tell what changes have made, have been made. I hope that tons have, I know from just talking to, you know, at conferences, engineers from different car companies will come to me and say, Oh, thanks for doing that research. Like that really got us more resources or we were able to hire or whatever. So like right. anecdotally, yes. Um, if you look at like real data, like some, you can see some changes. So like the Jeep we hacked was a 2014 Jeep Cherokee. Uh, sometime around 2018, they added in a new ECU to that, that, that line of cars that, that acted like a, you know, a gateway or a firewall, which would have made our attack like way harder. So like that stuff you can see from the outside, but like on the inside, like how they actually do things, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, I hope that it's, it's better. If they've had plenty of time to do it by now. Uh, do you worry that this cost that we talked about, if you want to hack, if you want to do car hacking research, you have to go purchase a vehicle or you have to have access to vehicle or get someone to purchase it for you. Do you worry that the, just this prohibitive cost of doing this research has limited the ability of, you know, researchers who may have the ability to do it, but just can't do it. And we're, we're kind of way behind because of this, uh, uh cost. I mean, it's a, it's a concern, I guess, but I hope that. 
you know, the entire car industry isn't only secure because researchers aren't looking <laughs> that, you know, like, right. But it's been proven. It's been proven that third party research drives a lot of this. I mean, we just had a one hour discussion of, of, of how all the work you guys did went into mitigations on windows and Mac platforms. You would, you would have to believe that a lot of, uh, a lot of public research, public publications would put some pressure on, uh, on these guys. And if there aren't more teams, like how many folks are doing public research and car hacking nowadays? Team Keen and maybe two others. Yeah, not right? many people, unfortunately. Shouldn't that be 25 teams based on the, um, the talent that we have in this? I mean, it, I think maybe you're giving security researchers too much credit. So like what made Apple or Microsoft or whoever change? Was it, was it pwned to own or was it actual malware that was, you know, costing their customers money? And uh, so, so like maybe the reason you don't see a ton of car security research is because cars aren't getting hacked. And so like there's not a, so right. like it, and I'm arguing that cars aren't getting hacked because guys don't have the ability or the resources. Uh, I mean, like guys like me, I'm saying hacked in like a malicious way. So like you, you don't right, see cars getting crashed every day because of cyber attacks. And if you did, then maybe there'd be more researchers willing to, you know, pay the money to get a car to do the research. But because it's like, well, it's like this thing that's not even happening. Maybe that is as much a detriment as the cost. Does, does your philosophy change, does your security philosophy change as you go to automobiles and cars uh, from, let me just frame it this way. On Windows, Microsoft has adopted this assume breach as a philosophy. You assume breach and you do detection and response. I'm guessing that in the car world, you can't really assume breach and deal with detection and response because the dangers associated with uh, an actual breach or an actual compromise would be much higher. How, how, did, how does your thinking how do you manage your thinking around just like a philosophy of, of protecting this car? Well, you're wrong, Ryan. <laughs> so you, you okay. can do it. So like, Fair right. Enough. So like, think about the G pack. So, uh, we attacked the head unit and then we attacked the like can controller. And then we were able to send messages to the brakes. Um, if when we attacked the head unit that was detected and you uh, shut off the head unit, then you win. Right. Or you may, or you like, you know, disable the can traffic. You, you put the car in a safe mode or something. So there, are, there's definitely like it's going to be a chain of attacks, even against a car. And if you can stop right. that chain before it reaches the end, you know, I always said like if all I could do is hack a car and change the radio station, that's a win, because like right. who cares, right? You know, it's bad, but it's you know it's not like turning the steering wheel bad. So so there is a time right. between the ability to turn the radio station and the ability to control the steering where you can do detection and response. And so that is, I mean, it's not the only thing you want to be doing, but it's certainly a important thing that, that, that car companies can do to make security better for their vehicles. I want to use the Tesla as an example, because if you buy a Tesla three years ago, today it's a better car because of software updates coming down the pike, right? And every time a software update comes, you click accept and you run it kind of just trusting these updates entirely. How worried should I be when I hit that? apply this update around the ability of someone to push a malicious update to my car to do dangerous things not necessarily tesla but cars in general how difficult it is to do what you guys did with your braking steering acceleration and all of that stuff i wouldn't be too worried i, I mean tesla uses code signing and stuff so uh, what's coming down to you was approved by someone who has a key at tesla which probably isn't that many people um if mm -hmm. if 
And uh, that, I mean, that can be that can, you, that can be bypassed and compromised. I mean, we've seen in the past that it's possible to get around these kinds of things. It's pretty rare. Like if you think about the whole world of exploits, very few have been uh, through Microsoft uh, Updater or something, right? Like that. I mean, I think it's happened, but can, if you compare this to number of edge exploits, like it's it's minuscule. So it, it's hard to to it's hard to mess that up, and it's hard to to exploit that. So. You know, get updating things securely is something that is pretty doable. Uh, it's not, but that's the way remote exploits will be distributed if they are to be distributed, right? Through those firmware updating mechanisms. I don't know. Like, uh, I could, like, we could have attacked all the cars that were vulnerable. You know, like the Jeep was vulnerable just through a, a cell phone interface. So, like, that we wouldn't have done that through secure updates. We would just attack them all. Um, I mean, maybe you could count our malware as an update, <laughs> but uh, I mean, right. so yes, there's, there's, you know, you can attack cars directly or you can attack them through their infrastructure and uh, you're describing kind of an infrastructure style attack, but um, there's other ways you could do that. But, you know, it's, you're, you're, when you buy a Tesla, you're signing up for a software car, right? And so right, you, right, you right. probably, just like anything else, you probably want those features because there's, there's new, better features coming down the pipe there and. You know, you could just turn that off probably. I don't know if you can, but uh, yeah. if you're the person who buys a Tesla, you probably don't want to turn that off because the reason you buy a Tesla is right. you like this new cool features and all the like cool auto updates and stuff. And so, uh, you know. So Cruise has a driverless fleet of cars out there and you guys are pushing updates to it. How do you, like, how do you make sure the car isn't calling for uh, somewhere else for a malicious update one? Or how do you make sure there isn't the ability for someone to push it. Is there anything you can talk about how you guys address it? Yeah, I mean, it? we just do what you would do on any device. Um, so like almost all the car security is really just security, uh, you know, best security standards for anything else, right? So we use TLS and we check the certificate. So we know we're talking to the right thing. And then the, the updates we download are signed and we have a, you know, we can check the signature before we install it. And, you know, we just the same sorts of, you know, we're, I'm not inventing new security, uh, you know, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm the same mitigation. Yeah, I'm using the same technologies yeah. that everyone else uses. And I just make sure we do it right, and you know, trying to not, not to make any mistakes. Uh, your your buddy Chris Velasic is not here, uh, but I want to put him on the spot because I suppose you guys talk every yep. day. He said, "In automotive automotive cybersecurity in 2022 is akin to where software security was around the time of the Bill Gates trustworthy computing men, m memo." That sounds to me scary, scary. It's like, how, how, I don't want to ask you to tell me what was he talking about, but is there a fear that automakers today are still back in the early 2000s as it relates to security? I think probably a better analogy would be that, you know, Chris and I were the, the Bill Gates trustworthy security memo when we hacked the Jeep. So, so that was right. like the eye-opening event for car companies, I hope. And that is the thing that hopefully set them down the path to, you know, putting the proper resources into securing their vehicles. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's where I think we are today is, is if you want to say like 2015 was like whenever this, you know, 2003, when Bill Gates or whoever did this, uh, then I would say, yeah, but I hope by now we're, and, you know, to, to Bill Gates credit, like that worked, right. That improved security right. greatly. Like you, the computer couldn't stay up for five seconds without getting hacked back before that. And so that was a big instigator in, in improving the security of, of the entire industry. And uh, I don't want to take too much credit, but hopefully something similar happened when we, we did the car attack against the Jeep.
I'm running out of time, so I'll throw one last question to you. If you could throw out to security research community areas in automotive research that's ripe for eyeballs, like what, where would you point them? Like what, 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 what intellectually, what are you more, more curious about pursuing in, as it relates to automotive? I think people should be looking at uh, gateway modules of cars. And so a lot of the architectural security of cars relies on this gateway module, which separates things that talk to the internet um, from things that control the steering, right? And so a lot of the, at least high level security is built on this module that can stop traffic from transversing that way. And uh, as so for example, like Tesla is literally the only one that has any research on it because that's who Keen Team likes to pick on. Um, right, right. And so there were some attacks early on, two years in a row, they were able to successfully bypass this gateway module and then control things like the brakes. Um, and then at some point they stop being able to do that. So uh, now if you watch some of them, our recent research is they get, they get a uh, remote code running and then they don't ever get to the brakes. Uh, so they did that for the, the, I am the BMW I three or whatever it was. And, uh, nice. so they were able, so, and then there was another one they did recently, the same thing. And so in both of those cases, the gateway module was able to stop them from doing like the super scary stuff. And, uh, so I caught. But there's still some work. Well, to car do companies that. rely a lot on this module. Um, you know, different companies have different modules, so you can't just look at one. And uh, I think we it would it would warrant spending time someone looking at it. Like if you can find a bypass in that, uh, it's it would be pretty impactful. It's trouble. So there's and there's attack surface and, and blood in the water. Uh, there? Well, there's no blood in the water besides on the Tesla because no one looks at this stuff. But right. <laughs> you know, it's it's a really important piece of of uh, you know to the security puzzle. It does process data. So it was, it would be a place that, you know, and, and like I mentioned, if, if Jeep would have had one of these, Chris and I probably wouldn't have been able to, there's a lot of things that like, if they would have done X, Chris and I would not have been able to hack the, the Jeep. And this is one of those things. Right. Uh, let me let you out to here with this. Whenever I talk to people about driverless cars and the coming world of self-driving vehicles, the first thing that pops up is not me safety, especially the layman. Like oh, I, I cannot trust this car to drive me. Uh, that 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 mindset will probably change as we move forward. Today, would you recommend your mom getting into a driverless car and driving the streets of San Francisco? Is there a legitimate worry that we sh- there? I mean, if you see my mom drive, no, so that's the thing is like everyone thinks they're a great driver, but I look around when I'm driving, and a lot of people are terrible drivers, and so. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I, I definitely wouldn't worry that she, you know, she's going to be in a car that's going to get cyber attacked. Uh, you know, I've been, if I've been working, you know, it's not perfect. There's, you know, that could happen someday, but you know, I've been working there five years and spent all that time making it hard. So it's going to be impressive exploit if it ever happens. I'll tell you that. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, you know, the, the, the car, self-driving cars are going to be safer than most drivers and you know, they're going to, at least ours is going to be secure. So I don't know why you wouldn't want to take one. Plus they're super cool. I'll leave it right there. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks for having me. It's, it's about time. It's more than about time. Thank Take you care, very buddy. Much.